I'd like to welcome Dr. Neil Shore, uh, who joins us today from the Atlantic Urology Clinics in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, as well as he's the medical director with Carolina Urologic Research Center. The other thing that I've really started to use the last two years, especially based upon patients' family histories, you know, do they have a significant family history of prostate cancer, premenopausal breast cancer, you know, other family members with colorectal cancer, ovarian cancer, melanoma, sometimes patients who have malignancies who are Eastern European Ashkenazi descent, or any patient who has, you know, uh, high-risk prostate cancer or metastatic prostate cancer, I'm, I've been getting additional uh, genomic testing, looking at germline, uh, what we inherit potentially from our, our mother and father and the gametes that ultimately may harbor gene alterations that are particularly relevant now because there are certain types of these alterations, for example, HOXB13 and the more commonly recognized BRCA2 and 1 or breast cancer genes 2 and 1, which there's ample data now that says that, you know, men with, with these genes are particularly poor candidates or not ideal candidates for active surveillance. And oftentimes we'll have a higher histopathology. They'll have a likely diagnosis of ultimately having nodal disease. They'll have a higher likelihood of, of going on to develop metastatic disease. So in conjunction with getting the Prolaris, I will oftentimes now very regularly, based upon family history and histopathology and staging, also get you know, germline testing in the form of my risk testing. So that combination allows me to further inform patients about their molecular and genomic risk factors outside of just the PSA, the DRE, and the histopathology. I agree that the uh, patients that are at high risk, if they have a hereditary mutation, definitely considered higher risk than even if they have a, a lower Gleason grade group, like a one with a germline mutation is somebody that I would be very wary about, especially putting on active surveillance. Do you feel that uh, this type of further classification or restratification will help groups be able to decide where there's a great number of uh, patients to have surgery or to have treatment that uh, doctors are arguing about who gets to go first? I always look at it like the biblical thing about the woman that the two women that show up to King Solomon and say, that's my baby, and the other one says, that's my baby. But in this case, it's two surgeons showing up saying, my patient's worse than his patient, so I need to go first or get on the robot before him. And somebody has to sit there and decide, and you really can't treat half the guy's patient and half the other guy's patient, although the analogy is pretty, pretty powerful. Would you say this is a good way for doctors to discern who should go first or whose patients are, you know, should be treated in some type of order? I think what you're you know alluding to is not all gleason sixes are the same are they yep. and not all gleason three plus fours are the same we pretty much recognize that once you start getting into the the grade group threes and above and certainly the fours and fives aggressive disease right interventional treatment goes to the top of the heap but then you have these other patients that's still a bit of a gray zone and um 
I'm reminded when you think about adages, one that uh, I used to hear growing up a lot was, you know, my, uh, my mother would say, you know, my pimple hurts more than your boil. It took me a while to figure that one out, but really what I kind of think about it is, yeah, you know, my Gleason 6 cancer, you know, maybe it's four out of 12 cores with, uh, you know, X percentage involvement as opposed to your six out of 12 cores, maybe mine's bilateral, yours is unilateral, and uh, you only have five to 10% core involvement. You know, so you can see, you can get into a, uh, maybe, maybe there's a couple of years difference, maybe there's some minor comorbidity differences. And so it becomes a little bit of a slug fest right. to prioritize. And maybe that can become an issue, not just within your own practice, but if you're, you're trying to get OR time and you have exactly. a, a competing group. So yeah, th this is not easy. I'm hopeful that some of the additional work that we've done over the years, and you know, you've been really instrumental in it to your credit, is trying to figure out, can we additionally stratify, you know, higher risk to lower risk within a, a specific category, a, a grade group two or three, and can that be used to, to help a patient understand, okay, we're good with waiting four weeks or eight weeks or possibly 10 weeks, uh, and, and giving that sort of reassurance, because, it's clear, you know, the longer I've been doing this is the level of anxiety out there with patients is, is rather extreme. I think we're really moving into this realm. I also think that the facility to order some of these tests, while we're still not out of the woods in terms of the infectivity concerns, is, you know, you've done your biopsies. You know, that was invasive. Yeah, that was as invasive as we can do. But now, we have opportunity to order additional hereditary germline testing, right. as well as further, uh, you know, genomic classification. That can be all done remotely. And then exactly. your follow-up can all be done via telehealth. And I think that, that I've been using that regularly now in my practice. And I find patients really enjoy the opportunity to say, okay, let me explain this to you, much like you and I are having this dialogue right now. Mm -hmm. And I explain, you know, in, in, in layman's terms, why we got the test, how I'm using the test, and how it's um, reinforcing our decision. And, and, and quite frankly, you know, the, the, the physician-patient shared decision-making. Well, I think you're right. I think and also the ability to do testing from home. I mean, obviously, the biopsy is going to be sent off just with the patient's permission. But to be able to do the hereditary testing from their house remotely without having to have the worry of going to the office is pretty powerful. And, and it, it will add a lot of information, especially in this waiting period. There's definitely ways to do this. And in, in some instances, it won't be as, as big of an issue. But I think in a lot of places, it will be. And hopefully, we won't see a second surge as predicted. Or And maybe the hum heat and humidity will slow the spread enough that between that and social distancing, we can, we can whip this thing and get back to some semblance of whatever the new normal is going to be. We bring in a patient during an acute phase of concerning infectivity and we do a biopsy and then they come back with a, you know, let's say a grade group two and maybe we get a second opinion on that biopsy and maybe now it's, uh, someone's calling it a grade group three. And, and, you know, so now you have controversy with the, the pathology interpretation. Do you get a, a third uh, opinion? Well, this is where, you know, you can take that, those, those same specimen and send it for a further, you know, genomic classific reclassification. 
And then, you know, maybe if we didn't do an adequate family history early on, we can say, well, wait a minute, now I, I'm, I have concerns about your family history. Maybe there's uh, a lot of premenopausal breast cancer. There's, you know, multiple relatives with prostate cancer who died of their cancer and didn't just have it. Maybe there's an additional ovarian or melanoma or pancreatic. And, and so now we say, well, so, wow, there's, these are all meeting NCCN guidelines for the recommendation for hereditary cancer testing that everyone should be aware of. And historically, what I've done was we, we would draw blood, but now we can send the kit and the patients can do a saliva, you know, a, a specimen and get the report back in a couple of weeks in conjunction with a further reclassification of their histopathology. And then we schedule a telemedicine visit. I've been, it's been really quite an optimal and efficient use of, of time mm -hmm. for the practice. And, you know, I think unless things go back to how they were, where there were hurdles to telehealth, I do really believe that we were going to see an ongoing sea change in how we practice, whether it's kits showing up to patients' homes for urine-based testing or uh, uh, saliva-based testing, or even possibly remote services coming in to do the blood tests some groups are doing drive-through blood draws. Uh, we haven't re resorted to that. We haven't really had to, you know, for where I am, fortunately, you know, there's not a traffic issue. There's not a parking issue. But for many of our colleagues in large metropolitan areas, these are very significant issues. And I, I think that the tests that we have available to us to help us better not only stratified our, our severity of the disease, newly diagnosed prostate cancer, inform regarding hereditary issues. Most importantly, helping patients come to a better decision and doing it uh, where they don't have to jeopardize themselves by coming to your clinic in the setting of concerns about viral infectivity rate and also protecting our staffs, you know, protecting the people who we work with and, and thirdly, and I don't think there's anything wrong to say it, well, we have to uh, preserve our economic sustainability. As running uh, practices, just like the hospitals do, uh, and they want to get in their surgical engine going, we, and you know, in, in the multidisciplinary field of urology, uh, where we do a lot of surgery, but we do a lot of non-surgical stuff, we have to think about ways to optimize. And I think that the ability to get these tests delivered to the home and then follow back up via telehealth is, is here to stay. Well, I, I agree. And I think that what groups have to realize that if it, you know, pending the decision that it is here to stay, and I agree that it is, it's hard, it's going to be hard to roll that backwards. But it's another service line um, for the groups so they can, they can run this parallel to the ramp back up into the office. But also, we're going to be seeing not just in the patients that have a treatable form of cancer, but those patients that are already metastatic or could potentially become part of your advanced prostate cancer centers, the ability to do now some uh, evaluations like the hereditary testing, you know, the, the kit-based, the saliva-based, and getting all that done in anticipation of things like the PARP inhibitor launch. So I think that's, like you're saying, that's a a huge step forward to be able to do this for a group and also to maintain some economic viability while some of the providers just aren't as busy as they are. You, you touch on an area that's very near and dear to me 
we've already talked about it, you know, is the importance of hereditary testing. You know, pretty much all cancers have some level of, of a hereditary component, whether known or unknown, and, and clearly have a mutational aberration in a gene line. And we're, we're really at the, uh, at the early stage. I don't think we're at the nascency, but we're at the early stages. And one just needs to look at the NCCN rapid change in their recommendations. So essentially recommending that, you know, essentially everybody with a diagnosis of prostate cancer, unless you're a Gleason 6 or 3 plus 4 and no family history, virtually everybody, if you're, if you're anything beyond a Gleason 6 or a 3 plus 4 with no family history, you should have, you know, germline testing. I can argue with you about even those patients because now they're, I mean, the breast cancer population, all these unaffected with no family history, the recommendation, everybody gets it. So well, I agree with that. So I, for me personally, I, I get it on everybody. So I've, I've been doing it for two years. I've been getting germline on all of my cancer patients and I get somatic on all of them as well. And when I do somatic, I try to both get tissue and liquid because I'm trying to not only learn, but I'm trying to get as much information as possible. And in fact, we had a, I had a, a poster at that at ASCO GU this year, which um, sadly was pro will probably be the last large live meeting I'll, I'll have gone to in the next two years. When you look at the, the way the, the guideline recommendations are, are evolving, to your point, I always think to myself, well, why wouldn't you get it? I mean, if it were you and, and you were diagnosed, wouldn't you want to have every option available to you um, to better understand your treatment options going forward? And you mentioned the PARP inhibitors. And it, it goes without saying that we'll have uh, assuredly by the, by the early summer, highly confident that we'll have two PARP inhibitors approved by the FDA for the treatment of patients with, you know, MCRPC. Right. And the only way you, you can treat these patients is to know what their genetic uh, profile is. And so you can only know that if you do the right testing. Today in the Urology Times, the profound trial, there was a big mention about that just earlier today. I know it's been out, the data's been out for a while, but now it's kind of hitting mainstream. And I think in anticipation that, that uh, at least the first uh, part is going to come out. Yeah, sure. no, we, we presented that data. I was part yeah, of that study and we presented it at ESMO. That was a meeting we, back when they had meetings. Yeah, <laughs> people actually actually sat next to each other in person. So <laughs> ESMO 2019, uh, you know, the, the, the co-senior leaders of this did a great job. That was Maha Hussein and Johan de Bono. And uh, our paper should be coming out momentarily. But even before the, the paper from the profound trial, a wonderful study demonstrating the value of Olaparib in a phase three trial globally conducted, uh, demonstrating the highly statistically significant benefit in delaying radiographic progression-free survival. Just this week, we also finally have now matured our overall survival data, showing that that's robust as well. So that's really exciting. Uh, and, and so I'm highly confident we'll see Olaparib approved in MCRPC uh, for patients uh, who have uh, BRCA2, BRCA1, and possibly some other uh, HRR gene defects. So, so, but again, as we were saying, if you're not testing, 
you wouldn't know that you could give these patients these oral medications. Exactly. And by the way, these gene defects could be with both a somatic or for germline. So yeah, but it's important, like you said, cancer doesn't wait for COVID. These people, especially with metastatic disease, are progressing as we speak. And it's, it'd be nice to know their status so that if they come out and they are eligible for for a laparib as soon as it's launched, um, and the caparib, which will be coming, I guess, the next one, um, they can start immediately. They don't have to wait and have delayed to get in to get their testing and then wait for the results and then get approved, et cetera. That could put it off two months. And by then, two months is a lot of time for these, for these guys. You're absolutely right. There will be a second uh, uh, oral uh, PARP inhibitor therapy, uh, rucaparib, based upon the Triton II study, which also clearly demonstrated objective response rate with a really uh, a significant duration of that response. So both of these drugs are going to be out there. And, and you're right, you're, you're, now you're looking at patients with, quote, advanced prostate cancer, MCRPC. These patients clearly take a much higher priority in terms of getting them into to treatment, getting them potentially into clinic for that type of testing if they haven't had it already. Uh, so it's an exciting time, but at the same time, I think because of the uncertainty of the time that we live in, and you mentioned it earlier, will we have some repeat waves of infectivity? I'm pretty realistic that we will, if not over the summer, potentially over the fall. And that goes back to just preparedness. And the preparedness is just understanding, okay, who needs to be tested, what tests are available to me that have been around for quite a while, and I can order these tests via the mail, and I can continue to reduce my, my risk exposure to elderly, potentially immunocompromised patients, and also reduce the exposure in a period of infectivity to my, my team, the, the, the folks who you work with, including yourself, and, and all of your colleagues where we, we have to maintain our own health safety because we can't afford to go down. But lastly, and I don't think it's um, inappropriate to say it, we talk about this a lot at the large urology group practice level is, you know, economic viability and sustainability. And we, we hear it about, we hear this at the congressional level. It's, you know, a conundrum of shutting everything down for, you know, you know until the disease is wiped out, which would be ideal. But, you know, we realize that poverty kills too, and we can't have uh, our practices, the independent practices of, of healthcare falling by the wayside. That would not be good for our healthcare system. Absolutely. Now, when you talk about a surge, don't say it too loud, because I have my daughter who's graduating from college, your son who's graduating from college without jobs, without prospects. I don't want to say it too loud, that there's going to be another surge and another wait. So even though my son and, and your daughter, they're both graduating now from grade schools without jobs, um, I, I keep trying to tell them they should become contact tracers. I mean, that's the, that's the, we need a lot of those folks. Uh, absolutely. And I think you're right. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be important. And, you know, I know people are talking about privacy and all that, but privacy or death, that's kind of one of your choices at this point. So, Neil, I want to thank you once again for joining us today for all your insights regarding hereditary cancer testing, especially testing uh, in a remote setting. I think that will be very helpful for all of our patients uh, as we enter a new age of treatment for their cancer. Thank you very much.